Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Catholic Truth Podcast, where we teach and preach the Catholic faith, which comes down to us from Jesus and the apostles. We want to help you to know your faith, love your faith, and live your faith with purpose and passion, and even be able to defend it. And sometimes on our show, we have special guests who have conversion stories, or who are theological and have a specialty, or they have written books. And in this case, we are welcoming back Joe Heschmeyer. And uh, he came on our show once before for his first book, The Early Church Was the Catholic Church. And if you want to check out that interview, we will link it to down below. Uh, Mr. Heschmeyer is a Catholic staff apologist for Catholic Answers. He is a popular author, speaker, blogger, and podcaster. He has authored four books so far, and two of them are the ones that are sitting here. The Early Church Was the Catholic Church and Pope Peter, which we will be discussing today. And I'm very excited about this book. In fact, this is probably... This is a fantastic book, people. I mean, it literally is all about, was Peter the Pope? And the answer is yes, not arguably yes, but, you know, pretty much yes. It, but it's not just about Peter. It's about the church. It's about understanding the difference between how Protestants and Catholics disagree on what the word church means. And it is so packed with information. This is probably one of the best books that I've read. I really, really, really enjoyed this book. And I really enjoy his writing style. And I really enjoy how much uh, information he puts in the books, but it's so easy to understand. So with all that being said, uh, welcome to the show, Joe. Thank you for joining us again. Oh, thanks for having me. That was quite the welcome. I appreciate it. You're absolutely welcome. It's such a pleasure to have you on. And uh, I'm very excited to talk about this book today. And uh, before we even get into uh, Peter as the first pope, I mean, how do we know? I mean, many people will say, oh, well, all you Catholics have is Matthew 16, 18, and it doesn't mean what you think it means. And we respond as really, that's, it's so much more than that. I mean, that's just one little passage, but the understanding of the church and the authority of the church and the papacy is so much wider. So I would like to kind of start at the beginning. What is the difference between Protestants and Catholics in regard to the church? What is the church? What do they think it is? What do we think it is? And kind of what are the different understandings of it? Yeah. So the difficulty in answering that question is always anytime someone says, like, what do Protestants think about X? The answer is always like, well, they don't agree with each other. Exactly. Uh, and on the issue of church, there are a few major views. We can we can more say what Protestants tend to reject in terms of the idea of the church. They tend to reject the idea that when scripture talks about the church, that it means a single, visible, organized society, which is what Catholics believe. But um when Jesus talks about building the church, he means building a church, not just a loose collection of believers somewhere, but an actual church, like a, a visible body that's connected. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't people who are connected to the visible church in some complicated ways who you can't really tell if they're totally in or out or, or something else. It, that's going to be true. That's true of a lot of organized religion. Uh, but it does mean that the Catholic idea is like there's an actual visible institution, but more than that, a society, whereas the Protestant view is to reject that in favor of a few different things. And one of those things is what's sometimes called an invisible church. That's the idea that church just means any believer anywhere. So the set of all believers is the church. So if you've got two Methodists, one of them saved and one of them isn't, the saved one is in the church, the unsaved one isn't, and then you got two Baptists over here, one of them saved and one of them isn't. Well, that one's in the church with the other saved Methodists, but the unsaved guys, they're not in the church at all. So it's that kind of idea where you have an invisible church that may overlap with, but isn't the same as any visible denomination. And it doesn't overlap with it entirely. So like, think about a Venn diagram, right? Like some Christians or some self-described Christians are in the church uh, and in any given denomination, but then some aren't and, and so forth. The other view or another view is to say that scripture uses two senses of church. It will affirm, well, sometimes when it's talking about like the spiritual body of Christ, and it means that invisible idea, but then other times it'll talk about like the visible church. And the reason that a lot of Protestants have to concede that there are these times is because you have places like Matthew 18 that talks about like, you know, when your brother sins against you, eventually you take the matter to the church. Well, if the church is an invisible reality known only to God, that's not workable. <laughs> like, how do you take it to like the collection of the saved known only to God? Like that doesn't work. And so there's clearly times in the New Testament where Jesus is describing the church 
in this way that could only work visibly. And so a lot of Protestants have conceded like, well, okay, those passages are about the visible church, but then they have to suggest that there's like an, a visible church over here and an invisible church, even though strangely enough, scripture never describes there being two churches or makes that distinction or delineates when and how. So it's really fat. Like if you go down this rabbit hole, it's really fascinating to look at these sort of, I would argue, exegetical backflips. Uh, so for instance, CARM, the uh, Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry, is like a pretty popular Calvinist website. And they have like a whole guide about like these four different meanings of church it could have. And they just put different verses in these different categories as to, well, this time church meant this. And it's a really strange kind of idea because there just isn't, they don't bother to say, here's the scripture saying that these are the four categories of church because that scripture doesn't exist. They, they're making up these categories and then plugging uh, the different biblical passages into them. Whereas the Catholic would say, like anytime the New Testament talks about church, it means one of the same thing. Now it might mean the local church or the broader church, but it's always some form of the same reality that Christ says, I will build my church, that he builds this actual visible society and we can talk about the particular, you know, the church in such and such a city or the church more broadly, but it's always the same thing. So that's the, the kind of big picture uh, distinction between the two. And that's what I hear a lot, too. I'll hear people all the time in our YouTube comments, our podcasting. People will say, oh, the church is just two or three people. That's all you need. That's the church. And then I point out Matthew 18, 15 through 18. They say, oh, well, it's it's just the people of God in general. <laughs> so they kind of keep backing it up. Well, um, actually, so, if, if I if I may press on that, Matthew yeah. 18 is a great one to use in responding to that, because the idea is where two or three are gathered, Jesus says he's going to be with you. That's from Matthew 18. But if you look at the right. context of Matthew 18, he's giving a three-step process for how to handle disputes. The first is you go to the person yourself. Second, you go with one or two others, which means there are two or three gathered in Jesus's name. And then if they still don't listen to you, the third step is to take it to the church. Now, if the church just means two or three gathered in the name of Jesus, then the second and the third step are the same thing, which clearly doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. So whatever the church is, it has to be something more than two or three people gathered in the name of Jesus, because he tells us that in the context of saying that he's present wherever two or three are gathered. Now, it sounded to me like you, when you were talking, that it sounds like many Protestants have accepted almost like two different churches, like there's the visible church and the invisible church, but that doesn't sound like it works to me. No, it, it doesn't, for a few reasons. <laughs> uh, John Calvin talks about this in Institutes of the Christian Religion, uh, you know, the famous reformer. He argues that outside of the visible church, there is no salvation. But they, being inside the visible church doesn't seem to do necessarily a whole lot. Like it's a necessary but not a sufficient condition. And you don't know if you're actually a member of the church in the invisible sense. And then it's like, well, why does the visible church matter at all in that schema? Like if the invisible church is the thing that really matters, who cares about the visible church? What's kind of the purpose of it? So it really is like it's a weak ecclesiology. It's a forced biblical interpretation that requires you to take the same word and interpret it in these two different ways that are often really competing ways uh, without any biblical evidence that that's the way you're supposed to be interpreting them. But more than that, it, it leads to uh, what I call in the book ecclesial deism. And I'm getting that term from Brian Cross. I think he might be getting it from someone else. But I don't remember. Uh, but it, it's this idea. So if deism is the, the notion of like the watchmaker God, like he winds the universe up and then lets it go. The way that Protestants tend to understand the visible church is that, that yeah, you know, the apostles seem to have had a visible church. There was some kind of gathering that the apostles were part of. We don't see them forming 12 different denominations. There clearly seems to be a visible church at the time of the apostles, where people were visibly in communion with each other, believing the same things, worshiping together, and so on, Acts 2.42. And uh, from that, the kind of standard Protestant telling of history is that Jesus kind of created this, entrusted to the apostles, they spread it, and then they all just kind of let it go. And then it fell into error. And so now it's not super important if we're part of that visible body, if that visible body even exists anymore, or if we're part of some other visible body, you know, like, it suddenly just becomes a matter of indifference. This thing that Jesus created and entrusted to the apostles and they spread 
turn out to be not super important and we can just kind of dispense with it because it's fallen into error and, and God didn't protect it from error. And I think that's actually a really strange kind of vision of the world and a really strange vision of Christianity that God wants you to follow him. He wants you to be in communion with him. He wants you to be in a Christian congreg like congregation and yet faced with all these different congregations with different creeds and different systems of belief he's apparently indifferent to which one you choose. That's a weird kind of conclusion to come to. Yeah. So that's what struck me too, is that there's only one body of Christ. There can't be two different bodies. There is only one body. So the fact that we're making two, three, four types of different churches, that sort of thing. And, you know, it strikes me too, that the old Testament is a foreshadowing of the new Testament, you know, circumcision to baptism and Passover to the Eucharist. Everything was pointing to the bigger, the better and the more perfect, except that Jesus's church didn't even last like, you know, 50 years before it started getting, you know, bad. And so it's like almost more imperfect than in the Old Testament. And that doesn't seem right. Yeah. So uh, in the book, I quote a Lutheran theologian who points out that uh, it's, he says it's the concrete visible church. That's the only real church. And he argues this on the grounds that ecclesia, like the word being used here. Well, the two things to know in Hebrew, the word would be kahal, which is like the assembly or the uh, gathering or the church of, of the people, you know, that Israel is described as the Kahel of God in Nehemiah 13. And the Greek version of that is Ecclesia, which is where we get, you know, ecclesiastical and all of that. Uh, and it's the notion of a gathering, an assembly of the people, that this word for church means an assembly. And he, this Lutheran theologian points out, it really doesn't mean anything to talk about an invisible assembly. That is just like a nonsensical combination of words. We all invisibly got together. Like, it, what does that mean? The whole point of an assembly is like there's a gathering together of people, which points to some sort of visible body, which points to some kind of visible union. And, and the scriptural imagery really points to this as well. Jesus says things like we're to be a city on a hill. Well, what's the city? Well, it's, it's visible, it's structured. And moreover, the visibility is really emphasized by the fact that it's on a hill. The reason it's on a hill is that the world can see it. And, and so likewise, he talks about us being a light that you don't put under a bushel basket. And these kind of references, uh, the Catholics responded to the reformers by pointing these out and saying, like, look, your idea of church just runs completely contrary uh, to the biblical understanding. And it was really remarkable seeing how the early Protestants kind of tried to work these passages into their system by saying, well, you know, even a city on a hill could be obscured with like fog or cloud. And it's like, yeah, you're totally butchering uh, the metaphor here. Like when Jesus is talking about the city on a hill, he's not saying a city that's so high up a hill, you can't see it. The whole point is that's like, it's up where you can see it. And, and that's what we're called to be. And if you read the passage, it's very clear that's what's going on. So yeah, this, this notion is like the biblical model is that there really is a visible society, the church. Now, again, I don't want to deny that some people may be connected to that visible society in weird ways. You know, uh, some of the early ideas for this book came when I was an American living in Italy. And I was connected in a strange and invisible way to a visible society. That doesn't mean America is just like an idea. And, you know, like it, if there's no visible place called America, it's all just, you know, people who feel American in their heart. No, 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 it's not that. It's like there's a visible society. And then there's some peripheries. And the peripheries are often complicated. We can't always say exactly where the boundaries are. This was true of Israel as well. You go back to the Psalms. And in the Psalms, God prophesies that among the sons of Israel, he'll include like those from Rahab, Egypt, and like these traditional enemies of Israel. So even then, there is this notion that some of the faithful may be connected to Israel in some mysterious way. But that doesn't mean Israel wasn't a visible place. It clearly was. It has borders and censuses and tribes and the you know, structure and all of this. The church as the reorganization of Israel is not in abandonment. It's the spread of, of what God has done with Israel. Yeah. So people, Pope, uh, Pope Peter is the book. And one thing that I noticed in the book is you quote a lot of Protestants. And unlike most Protestants who... Just over the years, I've noticed that they try to they choose the low hanging fruit in the Catholic Church and they just try to debunk that, which is usually, you know, a straw man anyways. But you've taken 
the high hanging fruit. You've taken some of the, the brightest theologians, the best Protestant apologists, the reformers. And, you know, the whole second part of every chapter is you what would Protestants say? How would Protestants respond? And then you quote them and then you answer their responses. So I really like that. It's a good apologetics work. And um, so what would you say that the church is from the Catholic perspective? We just, uh, we just uh, said that it was visible. It's a visible, it shines to the whole world. It's supposed to be seen. So yes, it's visible and invisible, but how do we see the church? Yeah, the church is the continuation of the incarnation. I know that's a really like strange way to describe it, but that's the biblical understanding of the church. When St. Paul talks about the church as the body of Christ, he doesn't mean body in some loose amorphous sense. Like body of Christ is an incarnational term. Uh, when Christ takes a body in the incarnation, that changes everything. And the Christian understanding of the ascension of Christ is not Jesus is abandoning his people. He promises he won't leave us orphans that he's enthroned in heaven and yet continues to be present in some mysterious way bodily through both the sacraments, particularly the Eucharist, and through the church. And so this idea is, is really baked into Christianity from the beginning. And, and Paul in particular sees this and talks about this. In Ephesians 1, he talks about Jesus and the church as the whole Christ, which is, again, this really kind of shocking phrase, uh, the fullness of him. <laughs> is the way he talks about it. Like the fullness of Christ is Jesus connected with the church. And there's a reason Paul has this understanding, right? Like in Acts 9, when he's still Saul going to persecute the church, he has this road to Damascus moment. And our Lord says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He doesn't say, why do you persecute my church? That Jesus has identified himself so radically with the church that we can talk about the church as a continuation of the incarnation in some way. That doesn't mean all the members are sinless or anything of the sort, but it does mean that somehow Christ continues in his visible ministry through the church, which means that the visibility of the church is actually an essential element. It's a really important kind of attribute of it. Uh, moreover, there's the kind of this idea, I, I referred to the church as a city on a hill, that idea of the church as a visible society. So St. Robert Bellarmine says, it's our teaching that there's only one ecclesia, not two. And this one and true church is the assembly of men bound together by the profession of the same Christian faith and the communion of the same sacraments under the rule of the legitimate pastors and especially that of the Roman pontiff, the one vicar of Christ on earth. So that idea that when scripture talks about the ecclesia, it means the church. It might mean locally, it might mean more broadly, but it always means the church. It doesn't mean, you know, sometimes it's invisible rally, sometimes a visible one. And so he says uh, the church is an assembly of men as visible and palpable as the assembly of the Roman people or the kingdom of France or the Republic of the Venetians. That if I say America, you know, as I said, you know it's a visible society with people and rules and structure and, and so on. You can understand what I'm talking about. Likewise, when we talk about the church, we should be able to say both who it is and where it is. Again, not in a way where we may know every soul that's connected to the church, but in a general way, like we should be able to say, yep, there's a Christian, that's the church, and so on. And if we can't do that, then we've really uh, disincarnated the church. We've turned it into this purely invisible, purely spiritual reality that sounds much more like Gnosticism than it does like Christianity. Yeah, very good point on that. Uh, I love what Steve Ray says. You know, if you're a, you know, if you're in the Catholic or if you're a historic Christian going back to the beginning of time, if you said take it, you know, Matthew 15, 18, take your problem to the church, we understand what that means. But he said if you're a Baptist and someone else is a Calvinist or a Lutheran and you have a problem with them, which church do you take it to? You know, you know, so he's like, it's problematic, especially Pentecostal bringing them all in. And then it becomes even more problematic if it's invisible and they don't even see that as authoritative. So I know as Catholics, we see the church as authoritative. And I, I've, I say this all the time, you know, if your church does not have bishops, priests, deacons, three offices mentioned in the Bible, then it's not the true church. So we see the church as authoritative, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 20, 12 28, uh, John 20, uh, 21 through 23, and so many other verses. Um, and I like the way you presented it in the book. Maybe you could talk about the authority that was given to the apostles, uh, the priestly role that they had given by Christ. Yeah. So the priestly role, this is something where I think a lot of Protestants are really kind of 
surprised and, and maybe even scandalized to hear this idea. But this yeah. is really, again, this is just straight biblical. I, I alluded to the relationship between Israel and the church. And I think it's an important theme to kind of pick up on that the church is not the abandonment of what God is doing in Israel, but the fulfillment of it and bringing it to a culmination, not just scrapping it. And so when you see something in the Old Testament, it's good to ask, well, what does this prefigure in the New Testament? What does this prefigure in the New Covenant church? And uh, so, for instance, in the Old Covenant, you've got a three-tiered ministry. You have a high priest, priest, and Levites. And this is a prefigurement of, of course, bishop, priest, deacon. And we get some indication of that in the Old Testament itself. In the last chapter of Isaiah, for instance, Isaiah 66, talks about the gathering together of the Gentiles. And so the Gentile believers will come into the fold. And our Lord promises, I will take some of them and make them priests and Levites. And I think that phrase is really kind of fascinating because from a Protestant perspective, you could understand God saying, I will take none of them, you know, well, Christ alone is our priest or saying I could, I'll take all of them, you know, well, we're all priests in some way, the royal priesthood through baptism. And what I don't think Protestants can typically, you know, maybe some exceptions like Anglicans or, or the like, but for the most part, certainly, there's not really a Protestant uh, position that would allow you to say, yes, some but not all believers share in this ministerial priesthood, that what is begun with priests and Levites in the Old Testament is brought to something new in the church. Because Isaiah 66 is pretty explicitly talking about the, the church that is to come, not talking about Gentiles being part of Old Testament Israel. So that sort of idea is, I think, the theological kind of backdrop for it. But then what is a priest? Well, a priest is one who offers sacrifice. Malachi 1.11 promises that there will be a sacrifice offered throughout the world. And so at the Last Supper, Jesus presents what appears to be the new Passover sacrifice, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. And then he tells him, do this in remembrance of me. That do this, that instruction to perform the sacrifice has always been understood as the institution of the priesthood. He's telling them to do things only a priest can do. And so on that basis, we, we conclude that they are priests because who's the one who offers sacrifice? Well, it's only a priest. And he doesn't open the Last Supper up to all of his disciples. You know, we see the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6. We don't see anything of the sort with the Passover. It's much more exclusive. It's an intimate meal among his band of apostles. This tells us something about who the proper ministers of the sacrament are. So that kind of understanding is really critical in terms of the theological kind of framework uh, to make sense of this. And, and then that's even before we get into like Peter's special role in it. But I think it's just important to get that part straight that this really is a priestly structure that is the fulfillment of and not repudiation of Israel. And we see, we keep coming back to Matthew 18, 15 through 18, and we see that uh, also here, right, with the authority to bind and loose that Jesus gives yes. the apostles. Could you talk about that and what, most people hear that, but they have no idea what that means. Yeah. You could open it up for people. Yeah, absolutely. So binding and listening turns out is a Jewish figure of speech. In other words, if we're trying to understand this with just a, a modern secular Christian mentality, we're missing kind of what's what's actually going on. Uh, that you'll find Josephus uses this phrase about binding and listening to refer to the authority of the Pharisees under the queen, but they were making the actual kind of governance decisions. And uh, so with the Old Testament law, for instance, just to take one example. You can't work on the Sabbath. Okay, great. What are you allowed to do? What are you not allowed to do? I can say the big principles. I'm, well, I'm not allowed to work. Well, am I allowed to go get the mail? Am I allowed to drive to church? Am I allowed to, you know, like those kind of questions are really like hot button ones operated. You know, uh, ovens have a Sabbath mode, right? Because to remind you not to even turn the oven on on the Sabbath, because that's considered by many modern Jews to be too much work. Those kind of questions. In other words, you have the rule, don't work on the Sabbath, and then you have this constant need for interpretation. Now, you can work yourself into knots trying to decide, well, if I go to get the mail, is that too much work? If I go to the store, is that too much? You know, like you can do that constantly and get absolutely no rest on the Sabbath because you're just debating <laughs> how much work is too much work. Or you can have some kind of interpretive authority that says you can do X and not Y. And then you can just listen to that and God will respect that you have done your best to follow the rule. 
and the rule was interpreted to you by some expert, some scholar of the law, and, and you followed it. So that was the notion that you could bind and loose it. You could say, well, this is bound under the law. This is not bound under the law. It's loosed. That was the original kind of sense of binding and loosening. And that is a critical interpretive authority. Uh, and, and what's more, we have some indication that that interpretive authority was respected. Matthew 23, Jesus, for all of the harsh words he says about the Pharisees, still tells the people to follow the Pharisees' teaching because they sit on Moses' seat. That seems to be a reference to some legitimate interpretive authority they have uh, being binding on ordinary believers. And then we also see in a really fascinating passage in John 11, the Sanhedrin gets together and they're plotting the death of Jesus. And the high priest uh, puts in his two cents about how it's better for one man, Jesus, to die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. And John, rather than saying, what a horrible high priest that he's plotting the death of an innocent person, says that he prophesied because he was high priest that year. In other words, John is assuming that by virtue of office, there's some kind of guidance of the Holy Spirit going on to prevent him from saying anything too heretical or whatever. He doesn't outline like the contours of that, but clearly some sort of authority and some sort of guidance, guided authority or divinely protected authority. Uh, that's the Jewish understanding. And that's what appears to be the Christian understanding for all of the faults the Jewish leaders have. That, that is nevertheless still the understanding that we see in the New Testament. So the apostles had by Christ an authority given to them so they could continue to teach and preach in his name. They could continue to work miracles. They could continue to have authority over the church. I mean, I don't see anywhere in the church or in the book of Acts where everyone just does it their own way. You know, they kind of just look at a book and kind of, oh, well, I think it means this. And I don't care what Paul says. Paul, Paul's not, Paul can't tell me what to do. I mean, he, they would be excommunicated if they had that attitude. And I think that's a question that's worth posing. Uh, I've done this in the past with Protestants that I've spoken to and just said, great, if it's the first century and you hear the gospel preached and you're convicted of its message, are you required to join the apostolic church or are you free to just kind of go your own way? And it's a question that a lot of Protestants have never really considered. And I've had people kind of go in both directions on that. Because on the one hand, if you say, no, no, I need to be part of the visible church. Okay, well, that's a pretty good indication you should still be part of the visible church. And you don't just have the right to go form your own body and say, well, this is still visible. Not good enough, right? Uh, if you couldn't do it, then your grandfather couldn't do it and, and so on. So you couldn't do it in the 15th century or 16th century. You can't do it today. If we've gotten rid of Protestantism as a life option. On the other hand, if you say, well, no, you're free to just ignore the apostles, and just take the message of Christianity somehow denuded of its apostolic authority and, and kind of have your own version of it. Well, now you're in something that doesn't even appear to be Christianity. And it certainly looks more like the Judaizers who get condemned than it does like apostolic Christianity. And I'll give you the example of Acts 15. The Judaizers went out without authority. We're told that at the beginning of the chapter. And then when the council considers the case, that's one of the things that they rebuke them for. They say some went out without authority. And so much so, like this is so built into the Christian understanding that in Romans 10, St. Paul can say, well, how can they preach unless they are sent? The idea is like, well, of course you don't just go out on your own. And so really hammering that home that like, yeah, yeah, the apostles had an actual authority over the church. That authority included in doctrinal interpretation. And one of the ways Christ signifies that is in the binding and loosening authority that he gives to the church broadly in Matthew 18, and then to one guy, Simon Peter, in Matthew 16. That, off the top of my head, um, you mentioned Acts 15, but Acts chapter 5 comes to mind where, you know, Peter, you know, strikes someone dead, you know, with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit strikes yes. someone dead through Peter, and it's because he did not listen to what... Peter was saying. And it's like, he, you know, Peter was saying, you have to give a certain amount of money. And he, imagine if he was saying, well, I personally don't believe that that's not my interpretation. I'm going to hold some back. You know, it's, we can't do that. I mean, Paul was clearly saying people who don't follow the doctrine are in schism and that's harshly condemned throughout scripture. So the apostles clearly have authority and there's so many more verses in this. I mean, you go through chapters explaining it and we don't have time on this podcast, but, um, Peter has a special role and he has a special authority and he has a, 
a, a special relationship with Christ. He was almost like groomed in a special uh, in a special way by Christ. Can you talk about that before we get like specifically to Peter himself and the authority that he had? Yeah, you you see this if you pay attention, you'll you'll notice this all over the place. Uh, for instance, in the Garden of Gethsemane, I love this as kind of a really clear image of it. So Christ is with the eleven apostles that are not Judas, and they go into the garden, and he leaves eight of them there. And then he brings three of them, Peter, James, and John, and they go further into the garden. And then from all appearances, all 11 of them fall asleep. And Jesus rebukes one of them personally, which is Peter. That gives us a pretty visible sense. So all of them are called to authority and leadership. All of them are called to be close companions and followers of Jesus. But a few of them he's taken into more intimate mentorship, discipleship, and one in particular, he's entrusted with particular authority. And that includes, of course, having more responsibility. The example I give in the book is like, you know, if, if you're gone and you come home and the house is a disaster and you rebuke one of your kids, there's a good chance that you're talking about the oldest kid, right? Like the one who was actually in charge, the one who was actually responsible. If all of them messed up in the exact same way and you scold one of them, that's, that tells us something about who who you expected more from. And that's a <coughs> biblical principle as well. It's Luke 12, 48. To whom much has been given, much will be expected. To whom more is given, more will be expected. That, you know, if, if Peter is the first pope, it follows that he would be the one who is particularly singled out and rebuked. If all of them are on entirely equally footing, it's n- or equal footing, it, it's not clear why any one of them would come in for harsher criticism than any other. Oh, I apologize. I'm having like major allergy attacks, like right in the middle of our interview. Woo. So sorry, everyone. Um, yeah. So I, I like that point where you point that out um, about how he got scolded, but uh, maybe you could talk about how Jesus used him too. Yes. Maybe that like, that, for example, like the three times, go ahead. Oh, you're starting to say that, for example, what? Oh, well, you might have something different in mind right off when I said that, but I was thinking of like how, you know, Jesus uh, kept using Peter as an example with the boat and the fishing in different ways. Yeah. He was grooming Peter in a special way. The yeah, good shepherd, all of that. Yeah, there are three fishing miracles in the New Testament and all of them involve Peter in this really intimate way. And not just like Peter is tied up in the miracle in a special way, but it's it's not a coincidence that Peter is a fisherman and Christ is using fishing miracles. And two of these are pretty famous, Luke 5 and John 21. Uh, with Luke 5, you've got four of the disciples who are present for this miraculous catch of fish. And then afterwards, Jesus tells Peter to come follow me, I'll make you a fisher of men. And again, he's being singled out within the group of disciples. Uh, in John 21, we've oh, got really? a similar... Th- yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there really is this sense that if we lose sight of, here are these other people wanting to follow Jesus. You've got the crowds on the shore listening to him. You've got these four guys who will later be part of the 12. And then Jesus is calling out one of them by name. Yeah, I, I think that'd feel a little bit like a slight to maybe James and John, <laughs> maybe Andrew. Peter's brother who actually led Peter to Christ. Uh, so, you know, there are, <laughs> there's reasonable interpretations that Jesus appears to be showing some kind of favoritism or some kind of particularity. And that particularity is, is contrary to what we want Jesus to do. We want everybody to be treated the exact same way and equally and all of that. But there's no indication in scripture that's how it's going to go. And there are plenty of indications to the contrary. The second miracle is maybe even more telling in that regard. This is the uh, the kind of forgotten one of the three in Matthew 17. There's uh, someone comes looking for Jesus, wanting to know if he's going to pay the temple tax. And Peter answers on Jesus's behalf. Rather than rebuking Peter for this, Jesus agrees with him and then tells him to go and catch a fish that has enough, uh, like a coin, worth enough to pay Jesus and Peter's tax and nobody else's. So again, in, this is right after the 12 have been traveling with Jesus. It's not explicit in the text, but it seems like they're all still together. And yet uh, Jesus has singled Peter out. John Calvin, when he gets to that passage, says, well, maybe he wasn't singling him out. Maybe he just stayed at Peter's house, which doesn't seem to get you out of the problem at all. It's like, okay. So you're saying rather than just performing a miracle for Peter, he also lives with him. 
uh, that still seems like he's been singled out in a special way for a certain role and authority. And then the third one, uh, Peter goes out with six other apostles on, in John 21. And there they see the Lord and uh, they catch so many fish, they can't bring the nets in. And then at Jesus's command, Peter is single-handedly able to bring the nets in and without tearing them. And now all of that by itself just, just should be setting off all sort of alarm bells. They're like, okay, Peter has some kind of special role. But this is all the more true in the backdrop of Matthew 13. Because in Matthew 13, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a net containing good and bad fish. So if the church on earth, the kingdom on earth is a net and to tear the net in Greek is, is the word for schism, schizo. Uh, Peter bringing the net to the shores with Christ was understood by St. Augustine and others as an image of this Petrine role that, you know, and, and this, someone emailed me about this actually yesterday and pointed out like, you know, this is written after Peter is dead, that John thinks it's so important that you know that this happened. Mm-hmm. And it's not just like a, a warm homage to Peter. He's telling us something about the ongoing role of this Petrine ministry. Uh, and that's how the early Christians understood it. That the first 20 chapters of the Gospel of John are about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The last chapter, John 21, is sort of an epilogue. Each of the Gospels has an epilogue. At the end of Matthew, you've got the Great Commission. At the end of Mark, the longer form of Mark, you have a very brief sort of epilogue saying, what do the apostles do next? Luke has an entire book, the book of Acts, that serves as like a sequel. And then John has John 21 which is not about Jesus once again proving he's risen. They know he's risen. This is about the ministry and role of the church in the apostolic age after Christ has, has risen. Like what happens now? And so it's very much explicitly forward-looking. It talks about the death of Peter, talks about this unknown nature of what's going to happen to John. He may well be the only living apostle by the time he writes this. You know, so you've got all of that. And in it, Peter has this unique role. Uh, that he's bringing the nets to the eternal shores where Jesus is going to have this this meal with his people. Uh, That looks and sounds a lot like Revelation than Wedding Feast of the Lamb. That looks and sounds a lot like kind of the Christian understanding that the church is like a boat moving through the waters towards the eternal shores of heaven. And if that's true, then Peter has clearly a special role to play in that. And speaking of the boat, he chose Peter's boat alone to speak on, right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, again, someone could say, well, maybe it was for pragmatic reasons. It was right there. But I think that doesn't do enough justice to uh, the fact that there's no coincidences in this. Like, I don't think we're reading too much into this. I I think like anyone not noticing all these Petrine connections is reading too little into these texts. I think uh, it was Patrick Madrid going way back here in his book, book Pope Fiction, and he mentioned that uh, Peter is mentioned 195 times in the New Testament, whereas St. John, the next most mentioned apostle, is 26 times, and this is all off the top of my head, and St. James is about 16 times, and then the others are just maybe a handful or not even at all. So you have, I mean, if you ask, you know, someone who had the first speech in the church and, you know, to convert 3,000, it was Peter. Who received the revelation of the Gentiles? It was Peter. Who did, you go through the whole thing, Peter, 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 for the majority of the New Testament. I mean, it's clearly... 195 times to 29, there's clearly a primacy of, you know, going on here in Peter's life that he is the head apostle. And we can even see this uh, even more clearly in Matthew 16, 18. Do you want to open that up for us and explain why many people might uh, misunderstand? Yeah. So Matthew 16, 18, it's so big. Uh, I I give two chapters to it in the book, but I, I purposely situate them towards the end of the book for the simple reason that I think you can make the Catholic case for the papacy without Matthew 16. I think it's uh, often we put all of our eggs in that basket. And so if a Protestant mm-hmm. isn't convinced by that, well, you need to have some other places to look. Uh, but moreover, it's a really confusing passage, right? It has all this imagery about the rock, the binding and loosening, the keys. Uh, what do all of these things mean? understandably people get mystified by this and say, well, I'm not totally persuaded by any one interpretation. So I would say that at the outset, like 
don't understand this to be the exclusive Catholic case. We haven't even touched on a lot of the other kind of angles that I look at in the book, uh, but this is nevertheless. And if you so would like to, we, we can, if you think there's a, some other important angles, otherwise oh, we can know, just let people. No, I, I, I think people can just read the book. I, okay. I'm, I'm not saying that as any kind of criticism of the interview at all, just to say sure. that I, I think sometimes from an apologetic perspective, we can make it sound. And you kind of alluded to this at the outset. The people can think, well, everything comes down to this one verse and, right. and not only to this one verse, but everything comes down to, well, how do we understand who the rock is when Jesus says upon this rock? Right. And it's clearly it Jesus because the whole Bible talks about <laughs> Jesus being the rock and the Catholics have just changed that to fit their own narrative. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, no. <laughs> so when we're talking about this, I'd, I'd say a couple of things. There's a few things to keep in mind from uh, kind of the bigger picture perspective, even from Matthew 16, which is that however you understand the, well, you know what, let me, let me step back because some listeners may not know what we're talking about here. Uh, Jesus brings the disciples away to Caesarea Philippi, which is totally the wrong direction of all the rest of his ministry. And he asks him two questions. Uh, who do men say that I am? Or well, actually, actually, who do men say the son of man is? And then he says, who do you say that I am? And then Peter then says, uh, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's really like an important passage because Jesus then says to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then he says that he'll give him the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever he binds on earth will be bound in heaven. Wherever he looses on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now there's a few things that are worth noting there. First, the context here is a personal blessing. And to see what that means, look to the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, like when Abraham is blessed by God and his name is changed to Abraham, you have here a similar structure. There's a blessing and a name change and particular promises being made to Peter. He's, Saul and Paul. Yeah. Uh, well, Saul and Paul, there's not a covenantal kind of blessing. There's a, certainly a name change, which shows there's an important change in status. Um, but this is more like Jacob to Israel or Abraham, oh, okay. to Abraham yes. where there's like, there are promises being made. And in conjunction with those promises, there's a change in name. Uh, and it. so that would be what I would suggest is the first kind of lens through which to understand the passage. That whatever's being said here is being said to Peter. So like Martin Luther will say uh, that the, the rock here is Jesus. And then Peter's a rock and since he's built on the rock. So we're all Peter's. And the problem with that is Jesus only changes the one guy's name. He doesn't change all the other apostles' names. And Peter's not even the first to confess him as the Christ. If you go back to John 1, you'll see plenty of other people doing that. And Jesus doesn't change any of their names. And so anything that kind of strips Simon of being kind of the recipient of the blessing misses it. In the same way that if we say God promises Abraham that he'll have children as numerous as the stars because of his faith. If we strip Abraham out of that, where it just becomes like, if you believe in God, you'll have a lot of kids, well, then we've totally missed the particular nature of the blessing. A blessing is given to someone. It's not just uh, kind of generic in, in, this, in this context. Some blessings are generic, you know, like the Beatitudes. But these blessings are particular, singled out by name, signified by invoking them by name, changing their name, and so on. And so that's important to understand. Like we are talking about Peter here. And so when someone gets to the phrase upon this rock, after Jesus has just changed Simon's name to rock and says, well, maybe the rock means all believers or faith or confession. I think they're just misunderstanding what a, a blessing means in the Old Testament context. Uh, but nevertheless, you could take that understanding and still come to the conclusion the papacy is true by just continuing to to read on because then jesus says i will give you and this is you singular this is to simon peter without any ambiguity i will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and wherever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and wherever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven now we find binding and loosening also given to the church in matthew 18 there are two ways of understanding that one way is to say that basically what jesus gives to peter particularly in matthew 16 he then nullifies basically by giving it to everyone in Matthew 18. He just got like the pre-release, like the person who gets the <laughs> iPhone a week early or something like that. Uh, that I think is a weak understanding, right? Because why include that in Matthew 16? Why would Matthew writing well <clears throat> after the fact think it's important to include both promises 
And the better understanding is that, well, the church is infallible collectively, see ecumenical councils and the census fidelium, and Peter isn't infallible as well, distinct from the infallibility of the church. That these are two modes in which the binding and loosening operates. And so it makes sense for Jesus to spell out both of these modes by the, the dual promises to Peter and to the church collective. And that, I think, does justice to the scriptural text and to the use of both promises. And then uh, connected with that is the gift of the keys. We don't see anyone else given the keys, just Peter. Now, we can talk in a loose sense of the other apostles sharing in the keys if we understand what we mean by the keys. Uh, I think in order to understand this, we have to look again to the Old Testament. Here, not to Genesis, but to Isaiah 22, because we see that imagery of the keys there as well. Uh, that... In Isaiah 22, Hilkiah is uh, cast out and Eliak. Oh, sorry. Can we actually do that one more time? I actually, I screwed up with the names and, and I figured we're early on enough. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, I mix up Shebna and Hilkiah. Yes, no Eliakim problem. Eliakim is who I'm, okay. Yes, you're, yes, Shebna, Eliakim. <laughs> ready? I'm ready. Okay. So I think to understand this, it's important to look to the Old Testament again, but here to Isaiah 22, because this imagery of the keys, we find this in the gift to Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Uh, and in that context, he's told that he's going to be clothed with a robe and a girdle will be put upon him. And the authority of Shebna, who's being deposed, is going to be put into his hand and that he'll become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So it's this notion of an administrative and even royal kind of authority, as well as a priestly authority. Look at that imagery of like the girdle and the robe. And there's some really interesting stuff I kind of explored in the book that this is a weird mix of royal and priestly imagery uh, being ascribed to uh, Shebna, or excuse me, to, to Eliakim. And uh, uh, there's a, a researcher from the University of Copenhagen by the name of Paulson who, who explores all of this stuff in greater depth, but it tells us something uh, about the role that Eliakim had in the Old Testament, but also, of course, about what is being promised here to Peter in Matthew 16. And so we, we get a sense of this in 2 Kings 18, when the enemies of Israel approach and they demand to speak to the king, Eliakim comes out. Now, Eliakim is not the king, but he's the representative, or we would say the vicar of the king. And so likewise, the Pope isn't the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's not God. He's not Christ, but he is the vicar of Christ. And that's what it means to give the keys of the kingdom. That concretely, Eliakim was the, the master of the household, the major duomo, uh, that kind of idea, the palace administrator. And, and likewise, the Pope's role is akin to something like that in terms of running the earthly affairs of the kingdom of heaven and uh, kind of sorting things out. So if we understand that kind of context, then the gift of keys is really significant. Now, Protestants will sometimes point out that, well, Jesus also describes himself as having keys in Revelation. And he talks about having the keys of life and death. And it's like, well, yeah, exactly. Because keys are this image of authority. That having conquered death, he has the keys of life and death. He has the authority of it. So if you get that keys are an image of authority, then to say that he's giving the keys of the kingdom to Peter, and there's no ambiguity. He doesn't say, I'm going to give the keys to myself. We don't have to say who's is he giving it to in the same way we might ask who's the rock well he's giving it to peter quite explicitly and and that's the only person he's seen giving these keys to well that tells us about peter's unique role in a really uh easy to kind of establish and hard to miss sort of way right so you know in matthew 18 we have all the apostles receiving the power to bind and loose you know they have mm -hmm. authority from christ to run the church in his stead mm -hmm. and to be guided by him and then in a in a unique way, we have Peter receiving a slightly higher authority, a primacy, if you will, by receiving the keys of the kingdom, which only he received. And to be fair, to be sure, there were other authorities in the kingdom of Israel, but they mm -hmm. all answered to Eliakim, who had the primacy of authority because he had the key of David. So likewise, Peter's not the only authority, but he has the primacy because of those keys. And, uh, did you want to say something on well, that? Well, yeah, yeah. I was going to say there's like we can talk about a, a loose sense in which the other apostles share in the keys, but sure. not not in like it, that's a less biblical way of understanding it. And just to say Peter has them, they weren't given them. And so, in as much as we understand the keys as an image of authority, we don't want to deny that there is a legitimate authority the other apostles have. 
Correct. And so I want to say that just to be like <clears throat> very fair to, I don't want to exaggerate the role of Peter, uh, but I do want to say Peter's given something pretty uniquely, pretty clearly here. Uh, another Old Testament passage to look to would actually be the, the investiture of Joseph in the book of Genesis by Pharaoh, where he makes him the second in command. And, and the way that is signified with like the putting the robe on him and everything else looks a lot like what we see in Isaiah 22 in regards to Eliakim. And uh, can you talk about, I want to talk in a minute about Peter and his role, but um, with the good shepherd, but maybe you could talk about, you just said, you know, it's obvious that Peter is the rock, you know, and I agree, but, you know, many people would disagree on that. And they would say that Christ is the rock. And to say mm -hmm. that anyone or anything except Christ is the rock is unbiblical and even maybe blasphemous. Yeah, so I think a, a couple things here. One, I want to just be totally fair in terms of the evidence. This is not a place where Christians have historically been united. Uh, in the book, I point out that there were four major theories in the early church about what Christ means by upon this rock. And that many of the church fathers took more than one of those interpretations pretty freely, but they weren't necessarily one or the other. So we could talk about the rock as Peter, as Peter's faith, as confessions of faith, and as Jesus. And because this is imagery, it's not, you know, straightforward uh, didactic, that it's possible that an image has more than one kind of meaning to it. And so, in fairness, I'm, I'm not saying it's Peter to the exclusion of every other possible interpretation, or it's Peter so clearly that no one could ever interpret it a different way. It's, it's clearly that's not the case. But within those bounds, I think it's still anyone who says it's not Peter is arguing against the clear meaning of the text and clear meaning of the context. And in the book, I actually look at some Protestant scholars who do a pretty good job of explaining why uh, it's best understood as referring to Peter and moreover, why the standard Protestant objections don't work. So the standard Protestant objections are uh, a few. First, this notion that no one besides Jesus is ever referred to as the rock or no one besides God is ever called the rock in scripture. And it's not true. Uh, Abraham is also referred to as a rock out of whom Israel was quarried. And so if Abraham, Abraham, is sort of a, a prefigurement of, or at least an important kind of bit of contextual background to Matthew 16, then it's not surprising uh, to see, okay, well, Abraham got called the rock, Peter got called the rock, in neither case was divine rockness being, you know, overthrown. There's no rule in, in scripture that says an image has to be used the same way every time. To give just one example, Jesus is the shepherd, he's also the sheep. Sometimes the sheep is us, you know, following the good shepherd. Other times it's Jesus, the lamb of God. So to say, well, we can't be the lamb. Christ is the lamb. Totally misses the mark. Totally misunderstands <laughs> the way imagery works. And so likewise, you know, uh, St. Paul talks about laying a foundation of Christ. And in that image, Christ is the foundation. Paul is the builder. In Matthew 16, Paul's not the builder. Jesus is. He says, I will build my church. And so you got a different builder. You also have a different foundation. He's talking about Peter as the rock. Again, not in a way that he denies his own, you know, bit of foundational authority, but that he's simply using a different image to express a different aspect of ecclesiology. Uh, likewise, you know, Paul can talk about the church being built on the foundation of the apostles with Christ himself as a the cornerstone. There, he's talking about both the apostles and Christ in a foundational way. And so, like, you, you can use more than one expression to have more than one referent and all of them be true in a non-contradictory way. So it's just not a good objection to say other places to rock is Christ. doesn't matter. Uh, Ephesians 5, right? Paul gives the example of the relation of Christ in the church of a man and his wife and a head and body. Taking both of those literally would just be nonsensical and trying to combine them together would be nonsensical. Uh, you're supposed to glean something from the image and it may not be the same imagery used the next time. So I would just say like that, that objection is being way too legalistic about metaphorical imagery. The second objection is this distinction allegedly between Petros and Petra. The notion is that Petros means a small rock. You'll sometimes hear it said that it's a pebble and, and Petra means like a large rock. And this just isn't true of first century Greek, but more than that, it's also uh, irrelevant because Jesus didn't speak these words in Greek. He spoke them in Aramaic. And we have good reason to know that. In John 1.42, uh, we have the prophecy of the name change of Simon to Peter. Jesus, upon meeting, upon meeting Simon, 
tells him he's going to change his name. Now, this is really remarkable. I, I look at this in the book, that in John 1, you've got person after person confessing Jesus as the Christ. You have John the Baptist saying that he's the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. You have all of these images, including by Andrew, including by Philip, uh, and I'm blanking on the name, Bartholomew, maybe? Uh, no, Nathaniel, uh, who all confess make these messianic proclamations. Now, if Matthew 16 is Jesus saying like, upon this confession of faith, I'll build my church. It's weird that he doesn't say it to any of those four people in John 1. Instead, he singles out the one person we see in John 1 who doesn't speak, which is Simon Peter. Andrew brings Simon to Jesus and Simon apparently says nothing. And Jesus says to him in verse 42, so you were Simon, you will be called. And then the word here is kepha which John then translates to Petros. The kepha just means rock. And it doesn't mean pebble. It doesn't mean small rock. It just means rock. So we know that the name change was originally in Aramaic, not in Greek. Why does that matter? Because the whole Petros Petra thing is based on a Greek wordplay that literally doesn't exist in Aramaic. It would just be you are kepha and upon this kepha I will build my church. And, and so that objection is just built on a misunderstanding, a misunderstanding of first century Greek, but also a misunderstanding of the language in which Jesus spoke. There's more that could be said to that. Um, but I think those are kind of important images to kind of, or excuse me, important objections to sort of clear up to kind of the standard Matthew 16 reading. And one thing that's always struck me is that Jesus and Paul multiple times call Peter Cephas, which is the translator transliterated word yeah it's rock. actually everyone says Cephas. it's actually kepha there's a hard c which is a, a like it because it's coming from kepha it's coming from the ceramic the right. only reason I, I i lean in on the pronunciation there is because it actually tells us something like if jesus had changed his name to petros well they wouldn't switch it then to an aramaic back to greek but if he changes it to kepha well you need to have some way of rendering that in greek and the way you render that in greek is as kephas and so that's what uh that's what's going on there but there's there's even more to it but yeah i think that's an important kind of just understanding to have so then people say well why does he do petros petra why does matthew do that in matthew 16 and the reason is because petros isn't a word used for stone anymore uh, by the first century. Lithos would be the word you would ordinarily use for like a stone or a rock. And, and so you're not going to say upon this lithos, because that would be like a small rock. You say upon this Petra. But Peter's name long before this was already rendered as Petros because it's a masculine form. Matthew, you'll sometimes hear people say, Matthew decides to give Peter the name Petros rather than Petra uh, because it's a male, male name. That's a little inaccurate because by the time Matthew's written, uh, Peter is already written in Greek, describing himself or, you know, addressing himself as Petros. So we already know that Petros was the standard version of Peter's name. And Petra is the standard way of saying rock. So this was not really a choice for Matthew. There was no way of, he couldn't do Petra, Petra, because that would be confusing because Peter already has a different name. He couldn't do Petros, Petros, because Petros isn't a word that was being used. You won't find that word used in in new testament greek with the exclusion of referring to peter's name thank you <clears throat> so much uh you could say about that so much i could say about that so much good content it's just so much it's so deep it's so wide there's it's not just like just oh it's this and it oh it's that um <clears throat> but maybe before we end i would love to hear you know what you have to say in regard to Peter uh, being singled out by Christ to lead in different ways, for example, you know, strengthening his bar brothers in uh, Luke or uh, being the good shepherd, as you had mentioned previously at the Gospel of John. Yeah, uh, one of the kind of classic ways we misunderstand the papacy is by imagining just like a hierarchy of power, you know, and, and we live in an age that's obsessed with power and, and interprets things through like a hermeneutic of power. And that's just a really bad understanding of the papacy in the same way that you know i know you and i are both fathers if we understood our relationship to our children is like i have power over you and i can make you do what i want we're going to be bad dads uh that rather it's here's this um in entrustment here's this person or persons who've been entrusted to me to care and love and that is a duty and yes that includes an authority but the authority follows upon a loving service, which is why in John 21, 
the threefold questioning of Jesus is, do you love me more than these? Do you love me? Do you love me? And, and that's part of the kind of sending of Peter, uh, that it's important that Peter loves Jesus and loved the people. That's why like the mandatum at the last supper is, is to, to wash the feet as well as to institute the Eucharist. Uh, and, and so that kind of is the hermeneutic necessary to understand like Luke 22 at the last supper, the apostles are arguing about which of them is the greatest. And Jesus says that it's basically servant leadership and says, I'm among you as one who serves. And then he singles out one of the 12 and tells him, Simon Peter, to strengthen his brothers. So he's just said like leadership is servant leadership and all of you are to do it to the church. And one of you is to do it to the rest of you. And that's what we mean by the papacy. And so it's beautiful that Jesus has taken someone who in so many ways is, is weak and as flawed as Simon Peter is, and he's gently cared for him. It really, I would argue, is a model so that he can gently care and lead us uh, just as he's been gently cared for and led himself. Yeah. And what about uh, John uh, John, and, uh, you know, do you love me? Do you love me? I like, you know, the part of your book where you draw that out. Yeah. Well, there, okay. So there's a lot that could be said. There, there. is. Um, well, <laughs> well, I guess let's summarize. Yeah. I was gonna, which angle do you want to go with it? Do you have something in particular? I'd, I'd be happy to kind of explore it, but I don't want to, I don't want to belabor it, I suppose. No, it's fine. You know, just, it, it almost seemed to me like you were saying that Jesus was almost kind of like he was training the apostles to continue his ministry after he left. He almost was training Simon Peter, you know, <clears throat> raising him up for a, a special unique role. Yeah. So in John 10, you have what appears to be a prophecy that there will be one flock with one shepherd. And the obvious way people have read that is that the one shepherd is Jesus. But I think there's a, a, a misreading perhaps going on there. If you read John 10 carefully, there's two back-to-back -back images being used. Again, think about Ephesians 5, where Paul puts together these two images that don't quite go together. Uh, husband and wife, head and body. And then in John 10, you have two parables, basically. Jesus has the, uh, the gate for the sheep, and those who don't come in by the gate aren't the true shepherd. And the true shepherd is the one who does come in by the gate. Well, you might think the true shepherd there is going to be Jesus, but it's not. Jesus says, I'm the gate and so the true shepherd is going to be one who is called by Christ. And so then Christ goes on to say he's also the good shepherd. So he's both the model shepherd and the one who will call the shepherds. The backdrop to all this is the prophecy in Jeremiah, where he says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart. And that this is like, we're promised shepherds after the heart of Jesus. Well, how do we know who are these shepherds and not? Well, through this kind of institutionalized mechanism that Christ himself will call shepherds and there will be one shepherd in particular that he calls. And so that I think is helpful in understanding John 21 in which the entire flock is entrusted to Peter in a way that we do not see the entire flock being entrusted to any other individual apostle. Uh, I've, I've seen Protestants respond to John 21 by saying, well, all of the apostles are entrusted to care for the flock. You won't find a parallel text saying like, Andrew, I want you to feed my flock or, or you know, St. Paul, I want you to feed my sheep. There's nothing like that with the other 12, with, with St. Paul, with any of the other leaders in the early church. Peter is being entrusted with the whole flock. And uh, to get there, you have to understand that John 21 is not the reinstatement of Peter that Peter never lost his apostleship. And I'm going to leave all of that aside uh, and just say, read the book if you're interested in finding out why. Uh, but that if, if you don't view John 21, this threefold affirmation as being about Peter being restored to apostleship, then Peter seems to be being commissioned to do something above and beyond what he was already commissioned to do as an apostle. Yeah, it's all good. <clears throat> People, please, if you haven't already just click the button on the catholic.com website back forward slash shop. You'll find this book, Pope Peter. And if you haven't bought it already, do so. It's fantastic. He might, this is um, his newest book as well. The early church was the Catholic church. And it goes through the entire uh, history of how the Catholic church was the early church and it shows it. And uh, so I highly recommend uh, this book. There's so much more information, so many more parallels, so many more uh, extrapolations, things you just pull out from the text of the gospels and history that 
just can't be done unless you do like a three hour podcast or something like that, which we don't have time for. So, but I do want to thank you uh, for joining us on our show today and sharing with us this information. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Where can people, you know, find out about you? <laughs> That's a good question. I have a blog, shamelesspopery.com. Uh, I work for Catholic Answers, so I regularly am doing stuff at catholic.com. You can also add me on Facebook, uh, Joe Heschmeyer. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm sort of just appear in the wild occasionally and just have like some new thing I'm sharing. So <laughs> Great. Yeah, thank you. Um, and for anyone else, I, again, I will link these uh, books down below and I will link um, our former interview with Joe down below, which was a great, fantastic interview. You should all watch it. And um, for anyone else who has not yet, please subscribe to our channel and please like this video. Feel free to leave a comment and feel free to share it with everyone because all of these things help to make these videos more popular and you help us to evangelize and to help get this message out there to the world, which desperately needs it because there's so many misconceptions. There are so many misunderstandings and people just don't know. They attack the Catholic church, but they just don't know better. They've heard things from other people, but they haven't fact-checked them themselves. And those people heard things from other people who, you know, and it, it just goes on and on. And if you read this book, and you see what the Protestant reformers said, and a lot of what the top Protestant scholars say, you're like, how could they even say such things? And, you know, it's very interesting how he takes these and then answers them. So please definitely check those out and see down below to see our uh, description sections, to see our social media, if you would like to follow us, and if you would like to support our ministry, it's all down below. Keep us in your prayers as we are always praying for you. God bless you all.